0: Welcome to the Kairos Church Podcast. We believe Jesus loves you, has called us all into his family and kingdom, and is moving through his family to his glory. Kairos Church is located in Grandview, Missouri. You can find us online at kairos-kc.org or through social media at Kairos Kansas City. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. something for you today that that will apply. Uh, I want to do a magic trick for you Uh, and it's it's not a very good magic trick I'm not gonna lie to you. Uh, You're probably going to have to figure it out. I'm gonna give it a couple of shuffles here maybe a quick cut just so you don't think that I've set this deck uh, because I can't set the deck. It would take me probably a whole hour to sit there and put cards in the order that I want them to go into and frankly I don't have I don't have that kind of time at all. Um, so that's see I'm not very good at this. I'm dropping the cards already. Give it a shuffle. I know it was. That's the trick. I knew it was. Okay. All right. All right, I'm going to put these in my pocket. You've probably seen a trick like this before. And, uh, see, I need... Alberta, would you come up here? Would you mind? You're going to be my guinea pig. (laughs) Now, Alberta, I'm going to help you choose a card. I'm going to help you choose a card. You come on up. Come on up. Do you not want to be on camera at all? That's okay. You're fine. You're fine. That's right. Because you just had the, the surgery. Yeah. So you're there. Okay. That's okay. That's all right. All right. Alberta, two through 10, choose five of those numbers. Two, three, four, five, six. Okay. So you've chosen those to eliminate them. All right, so that leaves a seven, eight, nine, and 10. Can you choose two of those numbers? 9 and 10. Okay, those are good numbers. Between 9 and 10, choose one of those. 10. Okay, so your card's going to be a 10. You chose that. Got 10. All right, between the four suits, uh, which are hearts, spades, diamonds, and clubs, choose two of those. Clubs and hearts, okay. You chose to discard those, just like you did the first round of numbers. All right, so that leaves spades and diamonds. Spades, we're good. You like diamonds? Then let's go with diamonds. Let's go with diamonds. We're going to say the 10 of diamonds. All right, I have have all 52 cards here in my pocket. How many times do you think it'll take me to pull out the 10 of diamonds? Don't say fifty-two. We got we we don't have that kind of much, that kind of time. No, no, it's it's in my pocket. It's in my it's it's in my pocket. Here, I'll move over here so you can you're not you're not high. It's in my pocket. I'm just how many times do you like how many on which card do you think I'll pull out the ten of diamond? Which one? The fifth. All right. All right. One. Two. Three. Four, so this is the one, right? Okay. Five. Ten of diamond. Right there. Right there. Thank you, Alberta. That's the ten of diamonds. I mean, it's already shuffled back. I just put it in. Uh oh. <laughs> so lesson learned, don't play poker with Alberta. That's, that's what we learned from that. Now, I do actually have a point for doing that magic trick. I've known that magic t- trick since I was a little kid. It's a super simple trick. Uh, if any of you want to know how to do it, I'm glad to tell you. And you'll be like, I can't believe I didn't think of that. Um, go ahead and open your Bible up to Acts And I want to make a disclaimer for this. This is not going to be an easy sermon for me to preach because I'm going to have to be a little uh, vulnerable with some of you and share some of my my own sinful history, okay? Uh, But I think it's important, and um, yeah. So the title, the way I title this is Overcoming the Religious Spirit. But as I've thought about it, I thought that's actually kind of a misnomer, isn't it? We call this a religious spirit, and as a result of that, religion gets a bad name. We end up saying things like religion, or relationship, not religion, but honestly, it ends up, it ends up, when we have that perspective, we remove ourselves from anything that, that is sacred, or the belief that we need even church community, like this. And, and honestly, that religious spirit has more to do with performance, Creating an image for ourselves. That religious spirit happens in every sphere of influence that you can think of. It happens at work, performing to a certain degree. It happens with political movements. Make sure that you toe the line, you look exactly this way, you do believe it this way, or you're out of the party. You can't question anything, right? Uh, it happens with even even very secular worldly organizations like the LGBTQIA. Dot dot dot. It happens there too, where if you don't toe the line, you don't act this way, you don't look this way, then then you must not really be one of us, right? It happens everywhere. This religious spirit is not just applied to religion. Okay. And so even if I call it a religious spirit, I want that to be understood that this religious spirit does not simply apply to Christianity. It applies across the board anywhere we recognize that we have accusations in our heart because somebody else isn't performing the way we feel like they ought to perform. The reason I did this trick was to show you that many times in our lives... The way we are presenting something to somebody else is often simply that. It is a trick. We want people to see what we want them to see. Frankly, I'll tell you how I did the trick. I didn't want you to see that I looked at the the bottom card before I put it in my pocket, and I led her to the ten of diamonds and simply drew the back card. I didn't want you to see that, because now the illusion of the trick is gone. Right? Right? The illusion is gone. It's been dismantled. And now you know it for what it is. A super simple, easy trick. Hope was sitting there shaking her head like, I know it. I know it. She knew the trick. She saw right through it. (laughs) The illusion has to be dismantled. This affects how we are together as a church family. It affects how we see each other. It affects how you see us as leaders. It affects how we leaders see you, this religious spirit. It affects how you see your own brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, your own children. It affects how we parent our kids, which is not just true for Sarah and I. I think it's true across the board. We want them to look and behave a certain way. I I can't tell you how many times growing up I was told going into a restaurant that we needed to sit there and act like good little gentlemen. Right? It didn't matter if I was only two years old. I needed to be a good little gentleman. Okay? That's exaggerating a bit. He didn't tell that to me. It was two, maybe three. Um, but the point is, is that we, we put these, these images on each other. We have all these different unspoken rules and codes, don't we? So the first section, I've broken my my message down into four sections, and the first section is called Something Worth Killing For. See, in the book of of Acts, you have this little story of Stephen, the first martyr, who is presenting his case before the Sanhedrin. And he takes them, he takes these Pharisees who know all of this, they have all the knowledge, he takes them through the history of the Israelites and says, but this is where who God is and where he has been the whole time, and he is here now in the form of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. He takes them through it, and they got angrier and angrier and angrier to the point that they took him out of the city and they stoned Stephen. They killed him. Because for them, the image and what they had latched onto with their idea of what was important being the Old Testament law was worth killing somebody for. And there standing in their presence was this man named Saul. And people would lay their cloaks down at his feet. He would hold them. He'd care for them. He'd cheer them on, support them in this. Yes, pick up another stone, throw it at Stephen, pick up another one. Until he's dead. Because the self-righteousness of Saul at that point was something worth killing for. The religious spirit was something worth killing for. Following that event, the church went into great persecution. It goes into Acts chapter 8. They go into great persecution, and the disciples they, they they fled from Jerusalem, all except for the apostles. They left. They went out into Samaria and around. They left. And you start getting some stories about a man named Philip, and we'll get into those in just a second, some things that he did. But they went into great persecution. And, and it says at the beginning of chapter 8, Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house after house after house, and he would drag off men and women and throw them into prison. Not just to sit in a rotten prison where they could get, you know, three meals a day but so they would be put to death. Because to him, that self-righteousness, the idea that that God, Jesus can't have been the Messiah, there's no way we could have missed it. There's no way. There's no way we were wrong about something. The self-righteousness was something worth killing for. Now, in my own life, uh, I, I have come out of a lot of self-righteousness, and frankly, I still have a lot of self-righteousness. I'm not sure that we ever really truly achieve oh, perfect righteousness, right? So it would be foolish of me to tell you that I don't have any at all, right? That would be dishonest of me. Uh, but when I say that I've come out of a lot of self-righteousness, uh, that is an understatement. So I'm going to give you an example. Uh, First off, just to to show you how far I would have come in some of my doctrine and how I was taught growing up uh, to believe that these things are are true and and evident in Scripture and what they don't and what Scripture says and what it doesn't say. You don't add to it. You don't do anything else. Um, I, I would not ever have stepped foot in this church if I were still the same person I was in high school or in college. Okay? Never. In fact, if we talked about healing, for example, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, my brothers and I would have sat on the couch at home watching TBN, and we would have been laughing at everybody saying it was fake and calling it out. That's who I was. One time, my, uh, my youth group—oh, I also grew up a cappella, so the fact that we have instruments is a no-no, Right? Had to come to terms with that doctrine. Uh, and, and this specific one that I'm about to tell you has to do with women leading. So we also have a, a, a woman leading worship. And that also would have been a huge no-no back, back for me back then. Okay? I've come a long way. I've challenged a lot of things through Scripture. I didn't just write them off just haphazardly. because like, well, I don't like this one, so I'm not going to go with it. I did actually look at it in scripture. But when I was in high school, my, my youth group would often either on Sunday night, uh, we'd either go to another church and have a big youth group meeting with their youth group or their youth group would come to us. And because I was in a, a non-denominational denomination, uh, there were still plenty of churches we could all hang out with and do things with. And we always knew which of the churches were labeled uh, the progressive churches, as in the churches that that wouldn't mind letting uh, maybe one of the girls start the a cappella song that we'd all then sing along with. Or, or maybe a church that doesn't mind if a woman passes the communion cup down the aisle or any of that kind of stuff. And I'm only touching on some stuff. <laughs> I, could, I could do this whole sermon this way. But this specific night, uh, one of the churches brought their youth group to my youth group. And I went to a pretty large church. We were around um, 1,000, maybe a little more than 1,000 at that time. Uh, so I had a, a pretty good-sized youth group, and I was seen as one of the leaders in the youth group. Um, at any rate, we were singing worship songs, and they were all a cappella songs, and we, the, the men in the youth group, the, the teen, the men, we boys were taking turns uh, leading the songs, or some of the adult male leaders were leading the songs Uh, And then there was a long enough pause where none of the guys wanted to start one because we were all little, everybody was a little bit shy, oh my goodness, they might hear our voice for two words before we start a song, and one of the girls in the other youth group started a song, and nobody in my youth group sang, none of the adult leaders, none of us, I know, see, that's the thing. You're sitting there saying, wow, but the thing I want you to check with yourself is to make sure that as I'm telling the story, you're not sitting in accusation of me or the people I grew up with. Because that's the religious spirit. It starts with accusation. So if you hear this story and you think, well, I never would have done that. Uh 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 uh, you're no better than I was. Check yourself, right? That's reality. One of the girls started singing, and their youth group sang with. I could picture her. I remember she ended up going to the same college that I went to, and I wish to God I had apologized to her. But I sat there, and everybody in my youth group was looking around. Somebody needs to say something. Somebody needs to do something. And they're looking at me. Why? Because I was the teen leader of the youth. The song ended, and I waited for the adults to say something. And the adults just sat there awkward and uncomfortable. And so I said something. I lifted up my rather loud voice, and I accused her. And I said, this is not scriptural. You lead in a song like this. And I chastised her in front of both youth groups, all the teens, all of the adults, Hope's mouth is now, I cannot believe it. I know, right? I called her out in front of everybody. And I felt zealous righteousness in doing so. I felt this is a doctrine that I was taught that this is sin. And for us to ignore this as sin would be wrong. And so I called her out. Youth group meeting over. There was no devotional after that. There was no more singing after that. Their youth group packed up and left. But not before their youth minister gave me a tongue lashing. Not before other adults with their group called me out and gave me a tongue lashing. Out of their own self-righteous spirit of not calling me up and just correcting me, they took an opportunity to lash out at me as well, in the same vein that I had just lashed out at them. Right? They felt vindicated in doing what they were doing because here this teen guy who was sinning. I had adult leaders in my church; some lashed out at me, who accused me and said I shouldn't have been doing da 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 yada 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 yada, who were also being self-righteous in the way they were lashing out at me. And then I had other adult leaders who heard what I said and came and patted me on the back and said, good for you, Ryan. Somebody needed to say something. And the pride in my spirit got puffed up, puffed up. And I sat there in accusation of everybody who had accused me. And my self-righteousness grew. See, what Saul did was physical assassination. What I did was spiritual assassination. And what the other people did with me was also spiritual assassination, whether they were patting me on the back or pointing their finger at me. At this point, you should be like, I cannot believe this guy is a pastor. <laughs> there's, there's a degree of the story where I've li- I've. I can look back at my life and I can say, God, thank you for giving me the spirit and to be the kind of a person who will call out sin, who will boldly call it out. But frankly, thank you, Jesus, also for working with me enough to know how to do so in a loving way because there was no love involved in that. You understand that? There was no love, zero love, zero love. The self-righteous spirit, the religious spirit, can cause, in Paul's day, or Saul, physical assassinations. Frankly, it can cause the same thing in our day, too. We as Christians, in the modern era, are not void of actually killing people in the name of what we say is in the name of Jesus. We are not void of that or innocent of it. Let's recognize it and call it out. More common, though, is spiritual assassination, where we partner with the accusing spirit, and we say, I cannot believe they are not doing this the way I think they should do it. Self-righteousness is masked by the religious spirit. It's hard to call out because sometimes it's performance, so it looks good, right? But self-righteousness, as it is masked by the religious spirit, it breeds... Accusation and discouragement. If you find that you are accusing others and are discouraged, there might be a bit of this going on. If you find yourself accusing others, there might be a bit of this going on. It also promotes self-importance rather than God-importance. And it prevents us from hearing truth for fear of being wronged. second section of my outline is called someone worth being someone worth being because as my spirit was puffed up the pride that frankly was already there grew even more grew real strong real strong uh, to the degree that I'm very aware when my own children show expressions of pride and I want to be like mm mm but I've got to be careful with them. Someone worth being. Pride, the lust for power, the lust for authority, the desire for popularity, to be well-liked within whatever, whatever organization you find yourself in. You just want people to like you, to think that you are someone worth being. Man, I'm glad that person's there. They are someone worth being. Acts goes on. All the disciples had dispersed through the persecution. Philip ends up in a city in Samaria, and he begins preaching the gospel. He preaches the good news in the midst of persecution. He says, yeah, this is going on. And yeah, if you come to Jesus, these people are going to persecute you, but this is the good news, and this good news is worth everything else. He preaches to them, they begin to believe. He teaches them, he, he calls out unclean spirits who loudly roar out of people. He miraculously heals the lame. And people see the power of God through what Philip is doing in the midst of persecution. One person who saw what was happening was this guy named Simon. Simon the Sorcerer. Woo! Simon the sorcerer, who had made a name for himself in this city. The people in the city, they called him, this is verse 10, 8 10. This man is called the great power of God. Look at all that Simon the sorcerer can do. And he wasn't doing anything by the power of God. Look at how great he is. Simon, though, sees what's happening. He sees what Philip is doing, and in the midst of real power, Simon knows that the power that he was wielding is weak. And he began to follow Philip. He believed and began to follow Philip. The apostles then, they come into Samaria... And they, they see that, that Philip's been preaching. He has these, all these people who are listening, but they haven't been filled with the gifts of the Holy Spirit yet. They haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit yet. They've been baptized in the name of Jesus, but they don't have the gift of the Spirit yet. So the apostles begin to pray and lay hands on the, on the believers. Simon the sorcerer reaches into his deep pockets of all the money that he made while he was duping everybody as Simon the sorcerer. And he takes out a bunch of silver and goes up to the apostles and says, Here, take all of this. Lay your hands on me so that I can also have the same power. Peter's not having it. He calls him out. He calls him out. This is what Peter says. Verse 20. May your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore... Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. I want you to catch something. He called out Simon the sorcerer, but it was done in love with a call to repentance to restore him. Okay? He goes on. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Another version would say bound by iniquity. Because that's what pride does, isn't it? Simon had lost his status. He had lost it. He had lost it. He knew that there was real power, and he believed in that real power. But he had the pride, and he wanted wanted that power. He wanted the people to just like him again. And he had all of this money, so he, he wanted to pay for it. See, in my own life, I had decided I wanted to go into ministry when I was ten years old. So I had planned—I had planned, I had planned uh, my entire life around going into ministry. I had set myself up for it. I had decided at ten years old that I was going to be a youth minister. I wanted to do youth pastor work, right? Namely, because I like teaching and I like—I like the energy of a youth group. Uh, but also really wanted to still be able to preach. And at that time, I didn't realize that youth pastors don't usually get to preach. Uh, and so, so it was kind of a combination of the two. I've been public speaking and preaching like this since I was 10 years old. Uh, and and things would come over me. I had a speech impediment. I, I had to go to speech therapy until I was 13 years old. But when I would publicly speak, when I would preach, the impediment would go away. I couldn't say my own name till I was 13 years old, and yet I could preach at 10 right? So pride built up in my ability to speak. Pride built up in my ability to lead. It built up in the way I would teach doctrine and understand doctrine and embrace doctrine. It built up in the way that I understood scripture. I did things in in my church growing up. One of the things that they really did right was that they taught me the word of God. I would go to competitions three or four times a year and compete with other youth groups from five different states in Bible knowledge, and I would win them. It was either myself or my younger brother that would take home first place every single time, right? Again, pride. Give me a blue ribbon in Bible knowledge, and I will think that I know more than everybody else, okay? And I, I don't. I really don't know more than everybody else, but the pride built up. I go to college. I work towards a ministry degree. My pride was built up. I would hear things my professors would say. And at that time, because I was hyper, hyper conservative, if they said anything that was a little bit progressive, I would want to call out my authority. That's one thing i can attest to this. I've never had a problem calling out authority. (laughs) I love you, Matt. (laughs) I get myself in trouble sometimes right? I would call out my authority. I had a professor who, who taught a class on personal evangelism, and I thought, I was real excited about it. I thought, I'm finally going to learn how to, how to just have a conversation with somebody about, the, about my faith and them being a non-believer, and the entire class was how to argue against Baptists, for goodness sake, right? That gives you any clue on the kind of environment that I was in, Okay. At some point during my college career, my parents got divorced, which shattered, which shattered my worldview, my view of the church. The, my family, we were the leaders of the church. We're now the outcasts of the church. And how do you cope with that as a young man, right? How do you cope with that? How do you deal with it? At that point, At that point, I decided I really didn't need to listen to my parents anymore because clearly they couldn't make this stuff work and they would have nothing else to ever say to me again about how to be in a relationship or anything else. So in that, I accused my parents and I blew them off and I puffed up my pride and said, I can figure it out on my own. I leave college, I leave college, a college I, I did graduate from, But at that time, uh, they would not defer my degree to me, even though I walked, I graduated, I did the thing, but I had one professor, the same one that had the personal evangelism class. I really did not like him. Um, Would not turn in one last grade. And because of my pride, forget that I had just paid, and not just paid, past tense, (laughs) still paying. At that time, $60,000 for a college degree that's now over a 100,000 thank you interest in government it's awesome that i just said yeah i'll pay you all this money because this one professor and in my pride i did not like him i refused to go to him and say what do i need to do to get this grade yep So I spent the next several years not feeling like I could ethically put a degree on my resume because the university would not defer it to me, even though he probably just needed me to write a 10-page paper. Probably. I still don't know. Yes, stubborn. Who said stubborn? Amen. Yes, that's right. I was. I am. I refused to contact him and to find out what I needed to do. And I'll never know because he passed away about five years ago. There's no way I can ever find out now. Now it's not just stubbornness. <laughs> you don't laugh. He died. It's not funny, Matt. <laughs> so I walked away from college without my degree. A degree that I had earned. I did earn it. I just didn't do one silly little thing that, you know, as a 21-year-old man, I was like, I'm done with this place. I'm done with this place. So instead, I went to Japan. I went to Japan because without a degree, I couldn't find a ministry job. God slammed the door shut on me, and I was in my, again, my pride and my self-righteousness. I then turned around and accused God of that. And I accused all the elder boards that I would, I would interview with over the phone. I had elder boards who would, the interview was going great, and they'd get to the point of, well, are you married? No, as a matter of fact, I'm not. And they hung up on me. And I would, pill, like, I'd be like, I cannot believe they did that. You know? It's, ministry's not a twofer, people. Just because the one does it doesn't mean the other's called to do the same thing. Come on. Right? See, Jill's over like, yes, that's correct. It's Right? Right? All these things happen where God slammed the door shut on me. Slammed the door shut. And I'm sitting there thinking, but God, I've given you all my silver. Why can't I have the thing? Why can't I have the thing, God? Why don't you want me? And I'm mad, and I literally gave God the bird. Multiple times, I would lift my finger up to heaven And say to God, screw you. You don't want me. I don't want you. And I walked through several years of heartache and pain. And frankly, not a lot of joy and trying to find all kinds of other areas to fill up that hole in my heart. Because I knew that God existed, but I did not believe he wanted me. I did not believe in the promise of Emmanuel because my pride got in the way. Because of the religious spirit. So when I have a sermon called Overcoming the Realist, this isn't, I'm, I know what I'm talking about here, <laughs> okay? And in that season of absolute spiritual blindness for me, I made a lot of choices that I wish I had. I made other choices, I'm glad or I did other things, or did not do things that I'm glad I did not do, though the temptation was great. That I now know the only reason I did not do some of those things is because of the Holy Spirit who was working in me in spite of my self-righteousness. I'll give you an example because this one will be like, I can't believe he'd ever be around people like this. He's a pastor. I had friends who were swingers and would go to swinger parties and they'd come to me and they'd show me all the pictures of all these beautiful, gorgeous women and say, you should come to these swinger parties sometime. And I had this voice in my head that would say, Ryan, if you do that, you will never go back. You will never be the same. That's the Holy Spirit. And so I did not do that. though the temptation was more than great. And yes, I'm still one of your pastors. I wouldn't even be here if God hadn't moved in a way to call things out of my heart, to bring me to a place of recognizing my great, great need for him and how much he really does love me And has been with me through all of it how he has walked me through it to a point where I I desired relationship with my parents and knew that I needed to walk through forgiveness because having my father in my life was more important than having bitterness I did not want to be bound by iniquity That pride brought on a lot of spiritual entitlement. I felt like I was I deserved what I wanted. I deserved to be in the ministry. 2020, the hindsight, not the year, uh, I can look back at that and I can see the mercy of God that those doors were shut. And I'm thankful that he did. At the time, I was pretty angry. But now I can look back at it and I can say, God, you saved not just me, but probably a whole lot of souls because you did not allow me to go spiritually assassinate them. I valued my worth above God's worth, and I was poisoned by that bitterness, and I was bound by iniquity because I thought that I was someone worth being. flipping that on his head, it's better to be someone of worth, to be someone of worth. In Acts chapter 9, you get this, this great story of Saul seeing Jesus. The opposite of pride is humility, and I can only imagine the amount of humility this conversion would have created and placed in his heart for his pride to be reversed. Chapter 9 starts, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, that he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. This is what he was known for. Man, he found his worth in that, didn't he? He found his identity in this thing. People know me now. They know that I will call them in, that their life will be over. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. This conversion was not just for Saul. Now, Saul's the one who needed to see Jesus because he needed to have the things that he was seeing to become unseen. He only saw the law. He only saw his own self-righteousness. He only saw his own pride. And he needed the the stuff he was seeing to become unseen so that he could see what he actually needed to see, which is Jesus Christ calling out to him, giving him direction, giving him new purpose, continue, go into the city. Because see, the whole thing with the performance spirit, the religious spirit, sometimes it looks like we're heading in the right direction, but our motivation is wrong. He was supposed to go to Damascus. But his reason for going to Damascus was wrong. It's the same direction, different motivation. On the other side of that, you end up with this guy named Ananias who's in Damascus. And God speaks to him too. And God says, hey, Ananias, I need you to go to to Straight Street. And there's a guy staying there in the house of Judas, which I love that. I love that he stayed in the house of a man named Judas wasn't the same Judas that was the apostle, but it's like, I'm housing in this place that's named the betrayer, right? And God tells Ananias, I need you to go to the house of Judas on Straight, on Straight Street. And I need you to lay your hands on this man, his name is Saul, so that he can see again. And Ananias, who only he had heard of Saul, all he saw with Saul was this man who would arrest people. All he saw was the hate and the anger and the vitriol and the self-righteousness. And he said, God, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I've heard of this guy. You're asking me to do something that's probably going to get me killed. There are a lot of people in the Bible that have done that, by the way. Jonah's one of them. Jonah responded by running away. Ananias, though, though he brought that challenge back to God, God said, go, because he is my chosen child to bring my name to the Gentiles and the kings and the Israelites. And Ananias did not balk at that. He heard the voice of God and was willing to unsee what he was seeing in Saul to see something new, to see the hand of God. And he went and he laid his hands on Saul, prayed for him, and the scales fell off of Saul's eyes. He could see again. He ate a little food, became strengthened. See, what I went through, what I was describing was uh, spiritual blindness. I went through uh, a series of to- a period of time where I was spiritually assassinating people. Um, I went through a period of time where I felt like I was spiritually entitled. And it all culminated in spiritual blindness something we all deal with one way or another. We all have blind spots. Okay? I dealt with spiritual blindness, and I'm sure I, stuck, like I said blind spots. <laughs> I won't know them until the Lord reveals them to me when he meets me on the road to Damascus, and he says, Ryan, stop. I once was blind, but then it got darker for me. I wish it could be as easy, it would have been as easy for me as it was for Simon the sorcerer, who heard the rebuke and then turned around and said, Pray for me that what you're saying does not happen. Would that I had somebody around me that would have said that and called me up, not just calling me out. Would that I had people around me like the men on the road to Damascus with Saul who heard but did not see, and then led him where he needed to go. In that story, I stopped at a specific verse. Chapter 9, verse 8. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Sometimes our eyes might be open to something, but we still remain spiritually blind because we need people to guide us to where the Lord wants us to go. We need people like Ananias who are willing to unsee what they think they saw and see something new. We need the family. We need the family. We don't need the accusations. We don't need the judgment. We don't need the gossip. We don't need the pride and the puffing ourselves up thinking that we've got it all figured out. We don't need the isolation thinking, well, God said relationship, not religion, so I'm not going to do anything with the local church anymore. We don't need that. Because that itself is its own form of self-righteousness. We need the family. From there... Paul went out then into Damascus and began to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. He had that moment where he unsaw what he needed to unsee and began to see Jesus Christ. And it changed his heart to the point where he said, I know exactly what will happen to me because I was the one doing it. I know exactly who will be coming for me because We were buddies. He walked away from everything to follow Jesus Christ. He did not hesitate. And he went out and boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus. He was being missional. He was being missional. He was being someone of worth and stop trying to just let everybody see someone worth being and people hated him for it by the way the disciples they still looked at him and they were like i don't know i think he might be pulling a magic trick on us and duping us i think this much just might be a trick to get more of us and then there were those that, that knew that, no, he wouldn't have done this if this wasn't real, if he hadn't truly converted and changed. And they wanted to kill him. He either had people not wanting to be in a relationship with him because they didn't trust him, or he had people wanting to kill him. We do the same thing in the church when somebody's doing something we don't happen to like. We remove ourselves from relationship, and we spiritually assassinate. Let's stop that, okay? Let's just agree to stop that. It's not a good practice. He walked into genuine righteousness. Now it's a process. I think that's a process for all of us because it's the Lord who's doing the perfecting work in us. It's not something that we can do. But as we pursue holiness and pursue godliness, the Lord does a work in us. And the pursuit of holiness and godliness isn't so that people can see that I'm holy is so that they can see he who is actually holy. He needed this guy named Barnabas, too. I love Barnabas. It's actually, I want to go back. It's it's ironic to me that this is, is Saul because uh, when I was in high school, we would do all these plays for BBS, like massive, massive plays. We had a theater director and everything. And I did them since I was 12 years old. By the time I was at that same age, I assassinated spiritually assassinated that young woman. Um, I was actually tasked to play Saul slash Paul in our drama, right? You know, never, <laughs> never knowing that, oh, hey, I'm kind of like this guy. You know, that alone, that too built up pride. Um, but I actually love Barnabas. Between the two of them, Barnabas is my jam, okay? He is, because Barnabas is actually a nickname. I don't know if you guys realize that. His real name is Joseph. My, my real first name is Joseph. Uh, Barnabas means son of encouragement, and I've always wanted to be someone who encourages others. Obviously, I haven't always walked that out. But he's the son of encouragement. I like Barnabas because when he and Paul would go around traveling together, people would look up at them and, and they would they would shout out and say, Barnabas must be like Zeus and Paul is like Hermes because Paul was the one talking, and Barnabas was this really big guy up there supporting them. Right? And they would, they would look at this. So we know, we know because of that, that Barnabas was a big guy. His name was Joseph. He liked to encourage people. I love Barnabas. I could go on about Barnabas. I'm not going to. The point is, is that by the time he got into Jerusalem, Saul wanted to go visit the apostles. And even then, the disciples that were there were like, I don't know about this guy. I don't know about him. And Barnabas, in the face of even the disciples rejecting Barnabas because he would stand by Paul, He went to them boldly, to the apostles. He went to them boldly and said, I throw my hat in with this guy. This is real. This is real. We need to do whatever we can to give him the megaphone and get him out on the streets boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ, the son of encouragement. More than just a pat on the back and a go get him. He put it on the line. He was family. Barnabas and Paul also had arguments later on, but I believe that they still remained in relationship and were Christian family. After all of this, verse 9, verse 31, or chapter 9, verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. The persecutor allowed himself to become the persecuted. And as a result, peace was brought. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Living in the fear of the Lord is reverence. It's the pursuit of godliness, the pursuit of holiness. It's it's revering the sacred. It's revering God. It's reverence. They were encouraged by the Holy Spirit, so not just by one another, but open to what the Holy Spirit was saying as the Holy Spirit moved through them and for them and for others and they increased in numbers. I often pray for this body. I often pray that, that we have seats filled in here. I would love to see this place grow, not just in numbers, but in worship, in worshipers. I got to tell you something too, though. I don't think life is all about numbers. I don't really care if some church has bigger is bigger than us, because that doesn't mean anything. If all we look at is the numbers, then all we're looking at is this thing that that we say, why can't we have that? And that's a false humility. This church is alive and well. This church is full of worshipers. Whether you are here today or on vacation somewhere, for those that might be watching online, this body is full of people who worship and love God. The way we increase in numbers is not by initiating more programs. It's not by whose faces we see from the front. It's by each and every one of us, myself, you, revering the Lord, being encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and being missional. Letting go of judgment and accusation letting go of past hurts from church, leadership, because we are all broken. I'm telling you, I am so broken. I am so broken. We in leadership are so broken to the point, but because of just the way way it goes, I guess, I don't know. It's very hard to be broken in front of you. This is the most isolating job on the face of the planet. Which in itself creates self-righteousness and pride and a religious spirit. But God has called us to be known and he's called us to know you because he wants to know you too and he wants to know us. I almost on a daily basis have to seek God to hear him to say, I love you anyway, Ryan. He loves me anyway. Who I was is not who I am today, and it is not who I will be tomorrow. It is not. Because the Lord is doing a perfecting work in me and in this church family and in each and every one of you. It is the Lord's hand. Be willing to change, to recognize your blind spots, and to walk with the Lord. And know that we're doing it together. In Jesus' name, be blessed as you go through your week. Please pray for us when we're on staff retreat. I've got to spend three days with Matt, and he stinks. <laughs> he doesn't. It's going to be fun. All right. Blessings to all of you guys. We love you. That was Pastor Ryan Rosser. Ryan has served Kairos Church's children, teens, and families since 2011. Thank you for listening. Please support our ministries as we develop Christian community in the greater Kansas City area and beyond. You can give online through our mobile app or website, www.kairos-kc.org.